All right. I'm going to tell you about one of the best jobs that I ever had. One of the best jobs I ever had was actually a door-to-door job. And if you believe it or not, I've actually worked multiple door-to-door jobs because that's what it was like for me in my 20s. And so uh, one of the door-to-door jobs that was the best, though, I would actually get to not have to sell something like one of them, but I actually would go to door-to-door and I would just try to find out if someone in the house was a baby boomer and if they could fill out a survey for me, I would give them money, okay? This is a real job. It was part of this research research grant that ASU was doing. It was the best job ever because when I was working sales and going door to door, people are slamming the door in my face, acting like I'm trying to get into their house and steal all of their things. And I just want some of their money. And so that would happen. Uh, but then when I'm doing this job and I'm offering money, all of the, all the baby boomers are rejoicing like, yes, come on in. We love you. Like, this is great. We'll fill out this survey. And so it, it was the best job because essentially I got to go door to door and give money out to people. So Anyways, uh, with this job, what happened was a lot of times I would be given a random student from ASU as one of my like research partners. I think a lot of times they were getting credit for some kind of research. And I was like, we go to McDonald's and then knock on doors. Like it's not really research. But uh, one of my favorite partners that I got was named Yashwanth. And Yashwanth was from India. He was like from India and he was getting his degree at ASU stateside. And so it it was, I I loved Yashwanth just as a person, person, but it was great to spend time with someone from India and just kind of hear their takes on different things. You know, I, I said to him one time, I was like, hey, why, does, why do all your movies have dancing in them? And his, his response was really good. He said, why don't yours? And I was like, that's a good, that's a good point. But anyway, so uh, we drive around, we knock on doors, and, and this one day we knocked on a door, and I don't know if it was Yashwant that kind of did the spiel or I did the spiel, but this woman is just excited to see us. She's a baby boomer, and she's excited to see my friend Yashwant, and she starts talking to both of us and getting to know both of us, and she says that she had been a missionary, that she had been a missionary in India, that she had been a missionary maybe near India, I can't remember, but she, she was very familiar with Indian culture, and she really understood it. It was even weirder, she starts getting to know me, and she just knows like all of these Christians I know. Like she's just like, oh, I know them and I know them and I know them. And so I had never met this woman before. And, and so we, we get talking, she says, sir, I'll do the survey, but here's what I want to do. I actually want to make a big Indian feast for you guys tomorrow. Can you guys come back to collect the survey? And tomorrow I'm going to make a big Indian feast for you guys because I want to just kind of love on Yashwan, who I know it's hard being away from home, that kind of a thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And I kind of went away like feeling really just like weirded out by it. Like I was like, I'm fine, like going to McDonald's every day. Like uh, we'll come back tomorrow and see, see what happens. And I was also a pickier eater back then. So I was like, what is Indian food? Like, and, and so anyways, uh, I was like, is she going to murder us? I don't know. I, I wasn't sure what's going to happen. So we come back the next day and I kind of, uh, you know, come up to the door and I'm like, there's no way she's actually doing what she said she would do. But we open the door and the aromas of India all of a sudden are just like in our nostrils. And she's like, come on in, guys. Come on in. Come on in. And we sit and she brings us down to her dining room table in her, in her house. And we just see it is, it is a feast. 
It is a feast of Indian food. Now, I had never had Indian food before. And so I'm eating, I'm like trying, I'm like, this is amazing. Why am I picky, all right? And I'm like, I need to like branch out more. And so I'm eating, it's delicious. Yashwanth is loving the food as well. He's like, you know, he's, I think he was even saying things like, this dish is, is so niche, like it's so specific. I have not had it stateside at all, even at Indian restaurants. And, and he was going, man, your food is delicious. How are you doing this, white lady? And so, uh, and so we had this amazing feast with this woman and this meal has always stuck with me. Like I, I just remember this meal that we had in our house uh, it, for so many reasons. One reason, it's just countercultural. Right? It's countercultural for, uh, and she was a single woman, a single woman to invite two random, like early 20s guys into her house and just feed them. It stuck with me because she was just so hospitable and she was so generous. She had gotten us so much food. It was like a buffet of Indian food. It was just amazing. And then it stuck with me because the way that she talked to Yashwanth, the way that she understood Yashwanth, her kindness towards him, uh, her, her understanding of his background, it was just, it was impressive. And I'm just watching my, my sister in Christ, the saint, just do such a great job loving Yashwant the way that Jesus would. And so it's a meal I'm, ne- I'm never going to forget. Funny enough, I've forgotten her name, but I'll never forget that meal because it was just so different. It was just such a countercultural thing. Okay, we are, we're wrapping up our Servant King series today. We've been, if you're new here, if you don't know, we've been going through this section in Isaiah that's chapters 40 through 55, which is one long, beautiful poem that God is giving to his people to comfort them while they are experiencing exile, while other, another nation is ruling them and oppressing them in different ways. God gives them this poem to comfort them and talk about this sort of restoration uh, that he's going to bring them. And we are in the last week of the series today, and so we're in the last chapter of this section of Isaiah, which is Isaiah chapter 55. And as you guys heard Jacqueline read, that section opens up with an invitation from God to his people, God to everybody, to come eat. Come eat. Come drink. Come, don't spend any money. I've got all the best food, and it's free. Come and eat. Now, some people actually think what Isaiah 55 is doing is expanding on this feast and banquet imagery that you see in at least one or two other places in Isaiah. One of the other places you see is Isaiah 25, where God is talking about how he's going to restore Israel and the imagery that he uses in Isaiah 25 about how he's going to restore Israel is saying, I'm going to bring everybody to a feast. Everybody's going to get to come to a feast and and eat with me. And Isaiah 55, I think, is expanding that imagery personally. Some people might debate that, but I think, again, God is echoing, come, come eat, come drink, don't pay. This is a feast that anybody can come to. And it reminds me, it reminds me of my sister in Christ, who years ago said, Yashwan, Anthony, come, come eat and feast like, I, I didn't realize it that day, but she was discipling me into the way of the Lord's feast. 
Like this is what the Lord does with us. He says, come feast at my table. It's not going to cost you anything. I'm going to know you really well. It's going to be the best foods, the most choice foods ever. And so when I read Isaiah 55, I can't help but think about this woman who in this time and place opened her table up just like the Lord opens his table up to us in Isaiah 55. And so here's what we're going to do today as we go through Isaiah 55. We're going to go through it in in three large chunks, and we're just going to read through a chunk and then talk through it. And so the first chunk that we're going to go through is verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah 55. And in that, we're going to see an invitation from God, and we're going to see some of God's work and his love. And then we're gonna, the next chunk that we're going to go through is verses 6 through 9. We're going to see another different invitation from God. And we're going to see more of his love. And the verses 10 through 13 of Isaiah 55 is the third chunk that we'll go through. And in that chunk, we're going to see what this restoration that this poem has been talking about will end up looking like for all of eternity. So that's where we're headed today. I'm going to take a drink. Usually when I preach, what I like to do is I like to read a text uh, or explain a text as we go, or just, I I often just will like pull uh, some points from a text and kind of talk through those points. But this this chapter in Isaiah 55, it it is just so beautiful to me that I, what I want to do is I actually, I want us to just read through these chunks as we go, and I just want to talk through all of the aspects of the things that I'm seeing in, the, in these lines of poetry. What is God communicating to his people and to us today? Uh, and so uh, that might be a little bit different than what we normally do, and so I, my hope is God's word speaks to us, and it's not just me rambling uh, today. So let's get into it. We're going to be on Isaiah 55. Let's start in verse 1. This is God speaking to his people. He says this, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Let's pause there. Essentially, what God is saying in these first five verses is because of all this work of restoration that I'm doing and going to do, because of my love, because of the suffering servant who we've learned a lot about in this series, because of all that, now everyone can feast with me. Because of all that, everyone can feast with me. And at my feast, sure, they can buy the food, but it doesn't cost anything. At my feast, no one pays. I pay for all the food. Everybody can come, and it's the best kind of food. It's the best kind of drink. It's the best kind of milk. And and he he even says, like, hey, in fact, at my feast, what I have to tell you when you come to me and the kind of food you get, I have to tell you, stop going out there. Stop going out there and buying food that's just not as as good, which I just feel like the poetry itself is, is trying to get us to think about how often we nourish ourselves 
with things that just don't truly satisfy. And God in this poetry is saying, I have true nourishment. I have things that will truly satisfy you. I have the best things that are going to nourish you the most. He's saying, come on in, everybody. I've got food and drink for you. Come on in, Anthony and Yashwant. I've got food and drink for you. Then God says this in the poem. He says, hey, remember, remember the covenant that I made with David? Remember that covenant? You guys talk about it a lot. How I, I said to David, hey, I'm going to bring a king through your lineage. There's a, I'm going to have this covenant with you specifically till the end of time. Remember that covenant? God then in these verses, he says, anyone that comes to the feast, I want to give that covenant to I want to make that covenant with anybody that comes to the feast. The sort of love that you see displayed in your Bible for David and the sort of special covenant I have with him, I actually want to make a special covenant with everybody. Like this, is, this would have been a radical idea to the Israelites hearing this. They would have been going, wait, wait, what? The covenant that David gets, you want to give to everybody that comes to the table to eat with you? That you want to give that sort of love away to everyone? And the, these poetic lines, God would say, yeah, that's what I want to do. As Isaiah 55 is closing up and we're looking at how God wants to restore his people, how throughout the poem, God has kind of said this sort of thing like, hey, I'm going to give you certain glimpses of restoration now. But he says, at the end of time, I'm really going to give you a full glimpse of restoration. I'm going to actually completely restore everything. As that's being what's said, God says the full glimpse of restoration is going to look like everyone coming to the table and feasting with me and everyone getting the sort of covenant that I have with David. The sort of love that I have for David, I actually have for everybody. God is, God is doing this work with his words in this poem. And he's doing this work with his words where he's trying to work his love into his people's hearts. Have you noticed that throughout these poems? As we've been going through the series that God is using his words, he's using the poetry to work his love into his people's hearts. His people are, who are unsure if he loves them, who feel abandoned by him, who are unsure of their standing in the world. He has been using these poetic words to work his love into their hearts. And I, I really see that that's what he's doing at the end of the poem here. Like he wants the people of God to be receptive to his love, to be receptive to his love that he is showing, that he is expressing to them. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, preachers to listen to, his name is Seth Trout. He, he's actually one of the preachers at uh, Redemption Gateway. And I love Seth because he's just, he's kind of like a robot. I make fun of him sometimes. I go, dude, you're kind of like a robot because his mind is just so sharp uh, and he just understands the word. Like he's just a brilliant guy. And he preached on Isaiah 54 last week and I was listening to the section that he preached and, and he talks about this idea of being receptive to God's love, how, how really the poetry is trying to make us receptive to God's love. And he went even farther and said, I think that we as Christians have to find ways to be receptive to God's love. And so I'm going to read his quote from that sermon. I, you know, I added a couple words because when you're talking to a crowd, it's a little bit grammatically incorrect sometimes. And so there's a few extra words in there. But here's what he said about this idea of being receptive to God's love. 
He says, I think, and the words should be on the screen, I think the core task of Christian discipleship, the core task of this church as we try to grow in faithfulness as followers of Jesus is that we all would let ourselves be fully receptive to God's love and affection for us. So often we think the main thing is to grow in love for Jesus, and I think that's a good thing, but I think that is a secondary thing compared to growing and receiving the love of Jesus. Coming to grips with how much God loves us is a lifelong process. Now, here's what Seth's saying. He's not saying love the Lord your God with all your heart is a bad command or secondary, but what he is trying to say is so often... So often what God is trying to do in Scripture is make us receptive to his love. So it is a good command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That is a good command, a primary command for us. But what the words, especially at the end of this section of Isaiah, are doing seems to be God trying to make us receptive to his love. That's what God is using this poetry through this prophet Isaiah to make his people receptive to his love. And I would argue, make anybody that hears these words receptive to his love. Hence the grand, large invitation that anyone can come to the table. And so the, the, the task set for, before us as the people of God at the, at the end of this section of Isaiah is to see how much God loves you. To see it. To see that his love, it's not discriminatory. To see that his love is vast and it's for you. It's for his people. It's for anyone. To see that he's inviting you to his table to eat. Which, by the way, in the ancient Near East, a king, which that's a lot of the imagery that God's been using about himself in this poem. A king inviting you to his table to eat, that's a big deal. Only the the cream of the crop got to do that. But God is saying, everybody can come to my table and eat with me. God is displaying his love. He's trying to work his love into our hearts. And so church, my question for us this morning is, what would it mean for you to be receptive to his love? What would it mean for you to be receptive to his love? I, I, I don't know, actually. I don't know the answer for you guys because I think it's probably a different answer for each of us. I think there will be similarities for sure. But this is even a question that I feel like I've been wrestling with since I first started going to church as a three-year-old. I've been hearing this idea that God loves me and I've been going, how do I become receptive to that? How do I understand that? I remember a time in my life where I was not receptive to it and then all of a sudden I was very receptive to it. I think part of that is a work of the Spirit, obviously. But I do think this poetry here is, is almost saying, be receptive to God's love. Like my friend Seth said, coming to grips with how much God loves us is a lifelong process. How will you be receptive to the love that God has for you? Again, I don't know what that looks like for you. It's going to look different. But what does it mean for you to come to his table? What does it mean for you to open yourself up to his love? Right? For, for a lot of us in the room, it's hard for us to even open ourselves up to another human's love. And a lot of times it's even harder to open ourselves up to God's love. 
because of our exile that we've talked about throughout this series. But God is using this poetry to let you know his love is holding the universe together and it is for you. God is trying to make you receptive to his love. The theobros of the world, okay, that's what Twitter likes to call them. The, the guys that are just like, well, theology really matters, and I'm one of those guys, unfortunately, but um, I, I don't identify as a theobro, but uh, for years, I've been hearing them say things like this, God is, is not a romantic. All of these songs about God being romantic and God being my boyfriend, that is wrong, that is not right, all that, and, and, and I get why they're reacting that way. I grew up in the 90s. All of our worship songs were like romantic love ballads, like uh, where Jesus was my boyfriend. And so I get why they're reacting that way because God's love is vast and he expresses it in lots of different ways. But as I read Isaiah... As I read this section of Isaiah, I can't help but think God is a romantic. Like he is. He, he, he is using poetry to help us be receptive to his love. God is the proverbial high school boyfriend standing outside your part-time job at Wendy's, holding up a promposal sign, asking you to prom with him. That's what he's doing. Right? Only God is way more mature than that boyfriend. And he's never going to dump you. <laughs> and he's way better at expressing his love. That's what he's doing with the poetry here in Isaiah. Church, meditate. Meditate on his love. Figure out, what does it mean for you to be receptive to his love? It's been a lifelong process for me. There have been times where I felt like I, I couldn't receive it. There have been times where I feel like I really could receive it. What does it mean to be receptive to God's love? How different, how different would we all be if we knew that God's steadfast love was over us, was on us, was with us, was being shown to us? How different would we be? I think we would be a thoroughly changed people if we were as receptive to his love as he wants us to be, as these words are trying to, to work his love into our hearts. All right, let's read the next section of Isaiah. Verse 6 says this. Uh, this is like the prophet speaking. When you see quotations, then it's like God speaking. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For your thoughts are not, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. All right, so God, here in this section, he's cluing us in to why the restoration plan is taking so long. Right, that's what the Israelites are saying. That's what I'm saying. Why is this restoration plan taking so long? And it's because of that second invitation we see, the invitation to seek the Lord while he could be found. God in this poem is saying, hey, I've, I've ordered history in a way. I'm guiding history in a way where the time that you live in right now, 
you can seek me and you can find me. God, God has says throughout his word that he's going to come one day. He's going to wrap things up. He's going to make everything right. He's going to judge the world. Like he's going to come and he's going to do those things. And so right now, this moment in history, though, God is saying, seek me while you can find me. Seek me before this thing gets wrapped up. Find me. Find me. And what's interesting is as he talks about that there's this imitation of finding God, he then invites even the wicked and the unrighteous, which wicked in Hebrew is basically like wicked in English. Like it is not like a good thing. Wicked. He's like, let the wicked turn from their ways, turn from their thoughts and turn to me. And what will the wicked, what will the unrighteous get? Compassion, mercy, pardon, forgiveness. The Israelites are like, wait, wait, what? I thought just us, the Israelites, we come to you, we get all those things. And God goes, no, 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 no. Everybody comes to the table, even the wicked. If the wicked turn from their ways and turn to me, I will give them mercy and I will give them forgiveness. God's love is like really intense. Like God's love is actually kind of offensive, God's love is offensive. Anyone that actually has a wicked person in their life or has been treated by a wicked person, God's love is offensive. It just is. So much so that God knew that. And so in the poetry, right away, he starts going, listen, I know. I know that seems crazy. And it seems crazy because my thoughts are not like your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways. I love the wicked. I love the unrighteous. I love everyone, every human with the image of God on them. I love them. So he had to go, look, I'm not like you. It's funny, we use these verses a lot, uh, and, and it's okay to use it this way, to be like, God is so beyond us. God's brain isn't like our brains. He, he's mysterious. He's so different than us. And you can use the verses that way. That's perfectly fine. But the exact reason he is saying that here in Isaiah is because he's saying, I love the wicked. I will forgive the wicked if they simply turn to me. And that is offensive about God. No matter who you are, you can turn to God and he will love you. This is is why the the, the God of the Bible seems so foolish to so many people. Because they go, anybody? Anybody could turn to God? Anyone could do it? And Isaiah And a lot of parts of the Bible say, yeah, that's how compassionate God is. That's how much he loves his humanity. That's how powerful the work of the suffering servant was, that it could bring in even the wicked and the unrighteous. God is not like us. His love is bigger than you can imagine. His love is bigger than you want it to be. God's love is bigger than you want it to be. And so in the second section here, church, don't miss the invitation. Don't miss the invitation. Seek God while he can still be found. He is doing everything he can to make us receptive to his love, to let the world know about his love, to invite the world in to his love. But he says, seek me while you can still find me. Find me. And then there's good, the good news is, 
Even the wicked, even the unrighteous, even the guilt-ridden, even those of you that think you can't go to God or run to him or come to him because of your past, because of whatever sin you've committed, God says, no, actually you can. You're welcome at my table. Even the wicked among you. Through this passage, he's just like, it's like God is reaching out and he's saying, find me, come to the table, hear my invitation. Because when it's all said and done, he wants everyone at the table with him. That's what his love is like. All right, let's keep going. Uh, Verses 10 through 13. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, will grow the juniper. And instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. Okay, the first message of this last section. God is basically saying, like, my words aren't just words. Right? He uses this metaphor of rain hitting the planet and, make, and it does not go back up into the sky. Well, I guess scientifically it does, but it's metaphor, it's poetry. He goes hitting the planet and it will do the work that rain does in causing things to bud, causing things to have the water that they need. And God is saying that's what his word is like. These words and these poems, they're, 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 it's not just words. It's not just fun words to listen to you. It is like rain pouring out on the earth. He is, these words are doing the work that he wants them to do. Which just makes me, again, think about that being receptive to God's love. Are we, are we realizing his love? It's, it's raining down on us through these words. Verses like these, are, it's part of why I have such a high view of Scripture. I know it's more and more popular to have a pretty low view of the Bible, but it is hard to read the Bible and have a low view of Scripture because it seems that God is saying, these are the words I use. They will not return to me void. These words themselves are not just words. They are part of the work of my restoration, of what I'm doing to restore all things. And then he starts talking about what the restoration will look like. What the words are going to accomplish. He says, you're going to go out in joy. This is strong Exodus imagery. He, the, the, the people of God hearing that message, they're in exile, they're oppressed by a foreign oppressor, and he's saying, you're going to go out of that in joy. Just like in the Exodus, the people of God went out of Egypt. And he's saying, you're going to do that again, and you're going to go out in joy. And what are you going to be led by? You're going to be led by peace. Which if you ever want to do a good study on a good Hebrew word is Shalom. In English, English, the word peace doesn't do it justice, but you can see why it's used. Because shalom in the Hebrew, this thing that God, through his restoration, wants to bring the whole earth. Uh, It really means like things the way they should be. Like shalom is like perfect harmony with all of creation and with God. 
And so God says part of his work of restoration is leading people out in joy, overflowing happiness, and they're going to be led by shalom. They're going to walk into a world where everything is the way that it should be. Everything is the way that it should be. Then God starts talking about what the sign of his restoration will be, what the sign of his restoration will be. He says, listen, the trees are going to start clapping. The trees themselves are going to have that joy, and it's just going to be obvious to you that the trees have that joy. He says, listen, the thorn bushes, they're going to be junipers, okay? Thorn bushes, you know what those are? Junipers, it's just like a fruitful tree. The the briars, you guys don't know what that is. I don't know what a briar is. I imagine the thing Simba falls into in, in Lion King. The briars, they're going to turn into the myrtle trees, another fruitful tree. And then God says something really, really awesome. He says, so essentially he's saying, all of creation is going to be perfect again. There's going to be no more thorns forever. Not just for a little while, not just like a really good spring, not just for Israel. He says, forever and ever and ever, creation itself, the environment itself, the earth itself, you yourselves are going to be absolutely perfect. There's going to be no more thorn bushes. The the creation will not be broken and ruled by sin. That's what God's restoration will look like. I, can't, I cannot wait for that day. I, I like a lot of things about this world and about my life and about the good gifts that God has given us. But there are a lot of things about this world that feel like thorn bushes. There are a lot of things about this world that are terrible and sad and difficult. And this part of the poem says, every sad thing will be undone. This creation will be perfect. Everything will be as it's supposed to be. Everything will be in shalom. It's interesting because the Bible here and elsewhere doesn't portray God's restoration plan as as God kind of coming and, and helping us escape to some other dimension or some other region. The Bible portrays God's goal in his restoration plan as renewing creation itself and making it perfect, making it sinless. I, I love that. I feel like that's just a way more helpful vision than the, the heaven, cloud in the skies place where we're playing harps. Right? I have non-Christian friends who come to me and go, that place seems boring. And I go, let me help you out. That, that's not what God's going to do. Like, sure, when we die, I think we go to be with God, whatever that means. But the, that's not where we're going to stay. God is going to bring us back to this creation, those of us that die. And he's going to renew the whole creation, creation itself. Everything that God created will be perfect. It will, humans will be sinless. Creation itself will not be touched by sin anymore. That's the imagery that God gives in this poem. And he says, not just for a little bit, not just for a season, but forever. That's going to be my sign to you. So as we're hanging out in eternity, every time we see a beautiful plant flourishing and we know that that plant won't die, it's a sign that we get to be with God forever. 
Do you have that sort of imagination about God's restoration? About what God's going to do here on this earth? Because the Bible talks about it in all sort of, sorts of poetic, beautiful, metaphorical images. My kids, I love it. When the, when the thorn bushes of life come our way as a family and we're kind of lamenting something painful in our, in, in our family or in one of our individual lives, I love it because my kids, they have this imagination of Jesus coming back and restoring all things. And often, the way we get through the, that is we hope. And often my kids will say, hey, that is, that's so sad, that's so horrible, but one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make this all better. And they say these things. I, I watched them at dinner last week encourage one another in that way. I just, I'm like, man, they are, they are speaking to what is so true. One of my kids, they are convinced that God's work of restoration, it's going to be so good that when Jesus comes back, me and her and Jesus are going to make a candy house together. <laughs> and I love her imagination. I, I, part of me goes, I think we'll, like, we'll be able to. <laughs> like, I think that's how good creation will be. We'll be able, it's a little bit like a, a little bit too much Hansel and Gretel vibes there. But besides that. I'm like, I love, I love her vision for what is possible. And it brings tears to my eyes because I know as I'm reading Isaiah, I'm going, that, that's the sort of restoration he's going to bring about. A restoration where creation itself is perfect. And that's what Isaiah's been trying to do to comfort us with these words. That God is going to send his suffering servant, who we know to be Jesus, to restore all things. And his work as a sufferer, which we know is through the cross. And his work as a restorer, which we know is the resurrection. Through that, all of this sort of restoration is going to happen. One day Jesus, is, he's going to come, he's going to fix all of our hearts. He's going to make it so our hearts don't sin anymore. One day Jesus is going to come and he's going to fix all of creation. There's going to be no more thorn bushes anymore. One day, Jesus is going to come, and this is really the best gift of all. He's going to fix our relationship with him. He's going to reunite heaven and earth, so now we live with God, and now our relationship with God is restored, and that's really the prize of the new restoration. That's really the prize of the new earth. The candy house is going to be awesome, but the prize is God himself. The creation itself will be an everlasting sign to us, that our relationship with God is restored. That we will be eating at the table with him, feasting with him forever. And this poem, this long poem that we've been in, chapters 40 through 55, it is all about how God is going to do that. And he wants those, especially that are experiencing exile in some way, discouragement in some way, to remember these words, to see these words. He wants these words to comfort us and to bring us hope. He wants us to see that these words speak to the reality that we can't see, the reality that doesn't feel real a lot. Sometimes we need to go to this section of Isaiah and go, this is what's real. This is what the Lord is doing. And, and, and today in the chapter, he ends by saying, Come to me. Everybody, come to me. And even, I think he would say, his people should be a sign to the world saying, let's go to God. Come to God. We should be invitation givers 
Come to the feast. Come see God. All you have to do, it's crazy. All you have to do is you have to just turn to him. Instead of keep going the direction you're going, the way you're doing life, just turn to him and see his vision for your life and for life in general. And so church, may we, may we find all of the hope and all of the love that God offers in this poem as we wrap up this series. May we find those things through God's word this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for Isaiah and using these words to, yeah, God, I really think to, to work your love into our hearts. So God, here's what I want to pray, God. I just made an audacious claim about you. I made a claim, God, that, that you want to work your love into our hearts. I made this claim, God, that we should be more receptive to your love, God. And I know, God, that there are people in here that have felt just like I've felt at different times in my life where I just feel like I, I, it's impossible. Like I can't receive your love like, love. like I'm not receiving your love. And so, God, I just pray right now a special work of your spirit in here on those hearts. Church, with me, pray for those hearts, that those that just are like, man, I can't, I can't, uh, something, I, I feel like I can't receive God's love. I feel like I can't be receptive to God's love. God, would you do a work of your spirit so they become more and more receptive to your love? Even if it's just a little bit this morning, God. Even if you just have to remind them that when they saw certain words in Isaiah, that all of a sudden their heart leaped. Or their, their mind connected to it, and they said, man, that makes sense to me. Whatever it is, God, I just pray that we would become receptive to your love and we see all of the good things that you're going to do to restore this earth and restore our relationship with you. Amen.